Now, how many of you have heard us talk about Worship Grow Serve on Sunday morning? All right, we've, we've said on many occasions this is what it means to be a member at First Baptist Church of Greg Gables, and yet we're going to go ahead and, as hard as it is to label this, what, what do you call it? Vision, purpose statement? Well, we're going to go with that. We're going to go with purpose statement. But essentially, this is what it is. It's what it means to be a member here. It's why we exist as a church. We exist to worship. And in that, because of that, as we'll see today, we exist to grow. We exist to serve. Uh, and so right here on this first little flap uh, really is the purpose statement itself. As you see, each one of these has three facets to them. Uh, we worship up, in, and out, right? Uh, the directions in which we exist are uh, are given. We grow up, we grow in, we grow out. We serve up, we serve in, we serve out. Uh, so this is kind of um, something we've been working on, and what we're going to do today is kind of unpack this and begin to unpack this with a really small series that I think is going to help propel us toward uh, Wednesday night uh, as a grow service. And so here's what I want to do. Uh, starting right under that line, worship, with up, uh, we're going to read through this together, okay? Uh, so we're going to say worship up, and then we're going to read, we praise and honor God through Jesus Christ. And we're going to say worship in, we'll read the next one. We're going to go all the way down and read that together. Would you do that with me? All right? All right, so right here, worship, grow, serve, first flap on the inside. Let's read that together. Worship up, we, we praise and honor God through Jesus Christ. Worship in. We gather with our church family to worship God. Worship out. We seek to extend God's glory among our, sorry, all peoples for his glory. Can't read. Grow up. We seek to be made more like Christ according to his gospel. Grow in. We equip and encourage our church family toward gospel growth. Grow out. We display, proclaim, and reproduce the gospel among all peoples for his glory. Serve up. We do all things for the glory of God according to his gospel. Serve in. We serve our church family primarily toward their worship and growth. Serve out. We serve God among all peoples for his glory. So really, my desire the next couple weeks is to consider not only just what our purpose says, uh, but really, if, if I had to put goals on what I want to do with the remaining time of our summer and even probably leading into August a little bit, it would be threefold. There's three things I'd like to do. I want to show you first and foremost that this is beyond a shadow of a doubt. This purpose statement is grounded in the Word of God itself. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of question that as you read them, but yet I want to show you that. It is in one sense uh, God's purpose for His people, not even just here at First Baptist Church of Gary Gables. Two, I want us to realign our hearts and minds with that purpose. And three, I want us to help, uh, I want to help us learn how to better live this purpose out. So those are what I would say are some of the modest goals that we have over the next however many weeks. So it seems appropriate before we start by jumping into the Gospel of John chapter 4, which is where we'll be tonight, to consider just, just kind of what, again, is a purpose statement. Uh, we really are talking about here what we believe we ought to be doing as a church. What are we supposed to be working towards uh, according to God's Word? That's what I mean when I say purpose statement. As a purpose statement, it's always something that we're 
striving to achieve or accomplish. Really, throughout this lifetime, if our purpose statement is biblical, if it's an appropriate uh, articulation of our sanctification, what it means to exist as a Christian, then our purpose statement really is never fully achieved in this life. However, our purpose statement should serve as a clear guide for evaluating our current course, where we're at right now as a gospel community. So it should help us to identify the thoughts, attitudes, and actions that we're doing right now that need to be reformed unto our purpose. To help us correct ways of doing things in our community that actually hinder our living out this purpose statement more and more. So again, let me remind you, this is not simply a purpose created by a group of people with really good intentions. But I genuinely believe not only is this a purpose for us as members at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, but this is actually the purpose for the true and living God that he has for his people. So if it's an accurate description of his purpose for his church, what we've got in front of us is a reliable tool we can use to guide and direct us as we live out this Christian life together. And that's why we're going to spend the next couple weeks better understanding it and learning how to live it. So, let's go ahead and dive in. And as always, uh, this is going to be more kind of lecture type, and yet, if you have any questions or comments, please put your hands up, and we'll stop and talk about it as well. And all, as also, as, as well, I'm not going to go through this point by point. Um, what we're going to start is just with the main idea of worship this, this evening. We exist to worship. And so, I'm going to go ahead and read that worship section by myself this time. Because it's going to be the main part we're focusing in on this morning, even though we won't cover all these points. We praise and honor God through Jesus Christ. We worship up. We gather with our church family to worship God. We worship in. And we seek to extend God's worship among all peoples for his glory. We worship out. So again, what I want you to see this evening is that fundamentally, we exist to worship God. That foundational statement... That part right there, that worship up, worship in, worship out, that's the reason for everything that comes after it. We exist to worship God, so we grow in worship. We exist to worship God, so we serve as worship. Worship is foundational. And so what is worship? Well, we... We've gone over this many times, and we've given a whole lot of bunch of different definitions about what worship is, but there's actually no clear definition in Scripture. Uh, it's not clearly articulated or expressed, uh, but certainly there is much that helps us understand what worship is. I like what the Westminster Catechism has to say and how that puts it. Do you know what it says? What is the chief end of men? Anybody know? It is to worship. That's what's in your notes. I was trying to trick you, but the Westminster Catechism says to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? Which is worship, right? That, that is worship. So, uh, again, the, to glorify God, that is to trust and obey Him, to live for Him, to gratefully submit to Him, revere Him, fear Him, and love Him, to serve Him and find our greatest joy in him that is worship so hear me i'm i'm convinced that the failure to recognize this as our highest privilege and preeminent vocation 
is exactly the reason the church, broadly speaking, in the West generally has become so weak and irrelevant. Think about it. It's no small irony that many churches believe their purpose is to fill their seats with lost people. It's no small irony that, that many churches believe they actually exist to change the culture or to look just like the culture. It's not even an irony that many churches believe they exist to teach people sound doctrine and then fill their seats with people who know a whole lot but love a whole little. Our, our highest calling as the people of God is worship. If anything replaces that, then we're off track. The moment worship is subjugated to some other noble cause, no matter how noble it may be, even if it's evangelism, acts of mercy, teaching, etc., a church, a Christian, has then lost their sight of their purpose. So hear me again. Why do we exist? We exist to worship. As a Christian, you exist to worship. As a community of Christians, we exist to worship. And because we exist to worship, we grow and we serve. Clear? So tonight we establish the foundation. I don't know if we're going to get through all of this, okay? Um, but we're going to try. Tonight we establish the foundation and we'll spend the next couple of weeks unpacking what it means in growing as worship, serving as worship, and in that calling all people to worship. So today we need a foundation. How do we know we worship God? That's the question I hope to help us answer tonight. So here we go. John chapter 4. I believe this is a critical text in all of Scripture. John chapter 4 may be the most important in regards to understanding true worship. Verses 20 and 26, worship shows up 10 times, I believe. It's all about worship. Who's got John 4? Pastor Justin. Great. Go ahead. Would you read that for me? It says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you say Jews are, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, "Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth." For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. All right, who, who wants to tell me the context of John chapter 4? What's happening here? Who's Jesus speaking to? Woman at the well. Woman at the well. What kind of woman was she? Samaritan woman, right? Most of us are familiar with this, right? So it's the middle of the day. Jesus is passing through Samaria. He's heading from Judea up to Galilee. He's tired. So uh, he's been traveling, and so the disciples, they go into town and grab him lunch. He stays at the well to rest, and providentially, he stays at the well to have an encounter with the very woman we find him speaking to in our passage. So the Samaritan woman, she goes to the well while Jesus is sitting there, and Jesus engages her in conversation. He asks her for water, and then he tells her that if she actually knew who he was, she would be asking him for water, living water, water that would satisfy her thirst forever. She would never thirst again, and after 
the water conversation, then the topic changes to her lack of a husband. And Jesus reveals his knowledge of everything she's ever done, by her own profession, by the way. She tells the people at the end of the story, come meet the man who's told me of all I've ever done. So at this point, she's convinced he, he must be a prophet. So she asks him to, to weigh in on a local theological debate. We Samaritans, we worship here on this mountain. But you are a Jew, and Jews tell us we worship in the wrong place, that we have to worship in Jerusalem. What about you, Jesus? What is it that you teach? Well, Jesus' response in verses 21 through 24, in my estimation, is what we call a virtual biblical theology on worship. We've used that term a lot, biblical theology. Can anybody tell me what biblical theology is or have a guess of what it is? theology. <laughs> so essentially what it is, it's a theology of study of God that connects the Bible as one story, right? Biblical theology tells us that the Bible is all about Christ, right? Genesis is about Jesus. Exodus is about Jesus. All of it is about Christ. There's this thread that goes through that points forward through the gospel in every single book. And what Jesus does is he's giving them, from the Old Testament to the New Testament now, a biblical theology on worship. And really, it could be summarized in three points. Jesus' response comes down to this. He says, you worship the wrong one, the wrong way. Sorry. <laughs> Somebody help the man out. Right? Can we get a millennial over there to hit no, uh, I would say that I would not know what to do. It's okay. All right. So Jesus again proving that uh, being a Baptist is is what he would choose. Uh, he gives us a, a sermon in three points here. Right. Uh, Jesus's response comes down to this. He says, "You worship the wrong one, the wrong way. We worship the right one, the right way." And there's now coming a new way. That's the summary of what Jesus tells this woman here. Okay, So I want to look at each of these in turn. We start with, you worship the wrong one the wrong way. The woman at the well asks Jesus where a person should worship. And Jesus responds, not with where, but really who and how kind of mixed together. His response is, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, Jesus says. By the way, did you notice this is not tolerance, is it? It's not politically correct, what we would say. Jesus would not be commended for such a straightforward response on how this woman and the well at the well and her people worship in ignorance that which they do not know. So the first point is essentially this. When it comes to worship, it's not where that matters, but who. When it comes to worship, it's not where that matters, but who. And, and who impacts the how and the where. Clear? As mud? That immediately brings us to the second point. Worship requires revelation. Worship requires revelation. When Jesus said, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, he was expressing a fundamental requirement for true worship. That's revelation. You cannot worship what you do not know. 
You can't know God apart from him revealing himself to you. Or let me paraphrase Jesus' statement this way. You must know what you worship. Now, this first requirement should be easy. And most people could even say, according to the Bible, if, if that's all we need is revelation, then all people can worship God. And indeed, I would say, amen, that's true. Not only can all people worship God, but all people should worship God because God has revealed himself to all people. How do we know that? Psalm 19. Who's got Psalm 19? Me. Go ahead, Miss Becky. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. And night unto night reveals knowledge. Okay, in other words, what that text tells us is that creation declares that there is a God 24-7 to everyone. Or, as Paul put it in Romans 1, who's got Romans 1? Go ahead, John. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Okay, so creation testifies to God. It proclaims that there's a God, and not only is there a God, but it proclaims his eternal power and divine nature, therefore demanding worship. Paul says this knowledge should lead everyone everywhere to honor God and give him thanks. That is what revelation should do. This truth about God should cause every person on the planet to worship and serve him. But Paul explains, everyone exchanges this revelatory truth for a lie. He says earlier they suppress it. They actually push it in so that they can't see it. Or they trade it in for something that's just a little more palatable for them. Like the worship of a preacher or something they can fashion with their own hands. And so let's summarize. To worship God, we must know him. To know him, he must reveal himself. But God has revealed himself, praise be to God. He has revealed himself to everyone, but everyone pretends they haven't received that revelation, that they don't know that they should be worshiping him, and so instead they worship other things. Any questions? Clear? So let's add to our second point then and return to the passage of John. Worship requires revelation, but it also requires something more than just general revelation because of sin. <coughs> Worship requires revelation, but it must require something more than just a general revelation because of sin. So I want to zero in on what Jesus told the woman at the well, and we see, we'll see if we can figure out what else it is we need. So who's got verse 22 again of John 4? Go ahead. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Okay, so, so even though everyone should know God, because as Paul put it, what can be known about God is plain because he's shown it to them. Even so, the Samaritan people obviously did not know something that the Jews did. You catch that? Samaritan and Jews both have the revelation of the heavens proclaiming the handiwork of God. Both Jews and Samaritans had that. So what was it that the Jews knew that the Samaritans didn't? Well, before we get there, it might be worth taking a few moments of our time to consider what the Samaritans didn't know. So this is not as clear cut as we might assume. We're going to have to zone, hone in and pay attention here. By that I mean we're going to read some from 1 Kings, which is I think everybody's favorite book. So... 
I want to put Jesus' comments into a larger context here. He says, you worship what you do not know. You see, the Samaritans were of mixed blood and mixed religion. We know that, don't we? They could trace their roots all the way back to Jacob, however. They were currently living in land that belonged to Old Testament Israel, and they considered Jacob their father, but their roots were also hopelessly entangled with several other people groups. They were mutts, like most of us, right? Every one of us, probably, we'd go to our heritage and we would say, what, French, Irish, Welsh, all kinds of different people groups in there. So were they. They were like them. See, after the vision of the nations, you remember the nation was divided into two kingdoms. What was the northern kingdom? Israel. What was the southern kingdom? Judah. 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 Uh, right. Eventually, Israel, the northern kingdom, was conquered by? Assyria. Assyria. The southern kingdom was conquered by? Babylon. Right. Absolutely. So, they were taken to exile. Other peoples were relocated in the land. But remember, Israel now is taken out, and Israel is relocated, and people are, are coming into their land. So, they're going out from their land, and people coming into their land. That caused some problems. You read about in 2 Kings chapter 17. Some of them come back, in fact. Some priests are even sent back to teach the people the fear of the Lord, which they do. The whole thing kind of ends up like this. 2 Kings 17, verse 41. Speaking of the people who lived in Samaria, what does the Bible say? Who's got that one? So these nations fear the Lord, yet serve their foreign enemies. Also their children and their children's children that continue doing as their fathers did, even to this day. All right, so you got that? What did they do? What is this, the first thing it says that they did? Idol worship. Well, before that, they feared the Lord, right? It's, and actually, you know what the Lord is there? It's the covenant name of the Lord. That's Yahweh in the Hebrew. But also, then what do they do, Miss Becky? They serve those carved images. If you got a problem with that, you should. The math doesn't work, does it? What does the Bible say? You can't serve masters, right? But that's what it says. And so what did they worship? Not God. Again, the point is they're mixed blood, mixed religion. And if we actually want to rewind even just a little bit further and go all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 12, we would see that their trajectory was set from the very beginning. As soon as the northern kingdom was established, the very first thing the king of the northern kingdom does is he establishes two places of worship with golden calves. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go all the way through the details that we find in 1 Kings, but it's worth noticing how similar the worship is to the worship you find in Jerusalem. This is important. It was meant to imitate that. In fact, you know where they probably got the golden calf idea? Wilderness. From the knowledge of what happened in Exodus and Mount Sinai, likely that's what happened. Jeroboam made a couple of temples to compete with the temples in Jerusalem. He appointed priests from among all the peoples. In fact, he was much more inclusive than God. God limited his priesthood to the Levites. He appointed a feast, as the text says, like the feast in Judah. He had an altar built and offered sacrifices on it. Of course, the king also had golden calves. Don't miss the point here. Listen to this. False worship. The wrong way to worship often looks like the right way to worship. It, it's very similar. False worship, the wrong way, often looks just like 
the right way. And listen, Jeroboam, he didn't invent something original. He recreated the wheel, so to speak. It was just square. He made a replica of the real thing. And many who worship at Jeroboam's altar probably believed that they were worshiping the God who had rescued them from Egypt. The woman of the well certainly believed that their worship was to their God, their father, Jacob of Israel. Listen, this wasn't Buddhism and it wasn't atheism. This was worship that was made to look just like the real thing. But God had not sanctioned it nor prescribed it. This was not acceptable to God. It was not true worship. It was not what God had revealed. The rituals look the same, but the worship itself is directed to something other than God, which is the only thing that makes worship real and true in the first place. Actually, while I'm at it, let me remind you. You know who called Jeroboam to be king of Israel? God himself did. Jeroboam didn't stage a coup. God gave him the northern kingdom. God made him king. So Jeroboam needed to be king, and he had to make tough choices, and he knew what was at stake if the people were to travel down to Jerusalem. Surely if they did that, they would return to Judah, to David's son. We can't have that happen. Listen, the wrong way to worship, a lot of times it looks like the right way to worship, and the wrong way to worship is often motivated by reasonable motives. The wrong way to worship is often motivated by reasonable motives. Jeroboam didn't want to die. God had given him that kingdom. God certainly would give him a place to worship, would he not? So what he did was he did what was right in his own eyes. And he, in the meantime, created false worship. That's what we have in that text in 1 Kings 12. Who's got that text? And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David, but these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord God at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore the king asked advice, make two casts of gold, and said to the people, It is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, you brought you see that? Listen, he not only did what was right in his own eyes, he, he even took counsel. The king asked advice, it says. He sought wisdom before he made this decision. It doesn't say in that text that he despised the Lord of Israel and, and wanted to trick people. This is not a man who didn't believe in God, so had to find something to replace him with. He just didn't know this God in a way that led to true worship. Okay, so that brings us all the way back to that woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus told her, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. That's point one. Any questions, comments? Mr. Cody, it sounds kind of like Jeroboam's experiencing fear of man. A little bit, yeah, absolutely. So was his counsel. If only we could have a whole course on fear of man. How, how would that help us? Yeah, that would be helpful. All right. We worship, Jesus says, the right one, the right way. Now, earlier I said that worship requires revelation, right? But notice something else. It requires something more than revelation. Let's return to that question. What is needed beyond revelation? Worship also requires redemption. Worship requires redemption. 
Jesus says we worship what we know for salvation is from who? The Jews. You see, the Jews didn't just know God through revelation communicated through creation. They knew God how? As their redeemer. They knew God through covenant, a relationship he had established. True worship requires redemption. I mean, we actually also learn this from Romans 1. Revelation without redemption does not provoke true worship. It actually instead brings about condemnation. Just a general revelation of God does not provoke worship. It provokes hiding. It provokes the creation of idols. See, it's interesting, right in that passage of Romans chapter 1, that they can suppress the truth about God, but you know what they can't suppress? They can't suppress their urge to worship. Did you notice that? They, they can't. They still exist to worship, but they are to give their worship to the true living God who is worthy of their worship, and they don't. And so when Jesus says, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, he's saying true worship is not simply predicated on some general revelation of God, for people would just suppress that. Jesus is saying not general revelation, but redemptive revelation. Knowledge of the covenant Lord of Israel, not just as creator, but as savior. Worship requires the revelation of God's redemptive work in history. Worship requires, that's next in your notes, the revelation of God's redemptive work in history. So when Jesus says, again, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, this is exactly what Jesus is teaching the woman at the well. True worship after the fall because of sin is always a response to the redemptive work of God and his revelation of that redemptive work. Always. There's no true worship apart from true salvation. Jesus says we worship what we know. Why? Salvation is from the Jews. You must be saved in order to worship. Listen, in the Old Testament, what did this mean? It meant a physical salvation from an oppressive tyrant that literally would not allow people to worship as a service to God. That's a picture. That's a foreshadow. It's a type. It's an illustration. And so Israel, God's son, is not allowed to serve God in worship because they got to work all the time. right? Pharaoh's commands and demands. So God must physically free them, bring them out from underneath the oppressive tyrant of Pharaoh in order to, uh, for Israel to worship and serve God in the way he's prescribed to them and this system of worship he would reveal to them. The Jewish people have been redeemed from Egypt for the express, express purpose of worship. We know that. Moses tells the Pharaoh that Pharaoh had to let God's people go. Why? He says it over and over again so that they could Worship so that they could serve me, so they can sacrifice to me, to hold a feast unto God. This is the language of Old Testament worship, to serve, to sacrifice, hold a feast. They are being called out of Egypt to worship. That's what salvation is. You're free to worship the true and living God. After all, according to our passage, the Father is on a mission, isn't he, to create a worshiping community. So we see it foreshadowed in the history of the Old Testament, in Jesus explicitly states in our passage that the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So the undeniable conclusion is that we are saved to worship God. If this is what the Father is seeking, then this is what His people will and must be, a community of God worshipers. So hear me now. Redemption and 
Revelation, they are inseparable when it comes to worship. God did not simply free Israel from Egypt, but the Lord rescued them by meeting Moses face to face, revealing his glory and speaking through him to both his people and to Pharaoh. Do you understand how personal that is? Moses, listen, Moses didn't just get a memo or a letter saying, hey, this is, this is what I'm going to do. But God revealed himself personally to Moses beforehand, used him in the liberation of his people, and then explained those events afterwards, all the while revealing himself through his redemptive works and his word. Why? So his people might glorify him and enjoy him forever. So, so when Jesus says we worship what we know, he has in mind what Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, verse 4. Who's got that one? They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Okay, so you can't separate any of those, right? All of those things hold together. This is what Jesus means when he tells the woman at the well, we worship what we know. God had adopted Israel out of all the peoples of the world. He made them his precious possession. God even calls them his son, Israel. Is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. He redeemed and revealed his glory to them. He called them to reveal and reflect his glory to the nations as a kingdom of priests. He entered into a special relationship through covenants. Those covenants created a relationship that did not exist before. The Jews at Mount Sinai received the law of the terms that governed that new relationship, and he received their worship. Now listen, don't miss this. God explained to Israel in no uncertain terms how the Jews were to approach God and serve him. This was revealed to the redeemed people of Israel, not to the nations. So true worship, again, according to Romans 9.4, is a response to redemptive revelation. We worship what we know. If the woman at the well was ever going to be a true worshiper, if she was ever going to worship the right way, she would have to believe this fundamental truth. There is no worship apart from redemption and revelation. The only source of redemptive revelation, including who to worship and how to worship, belonged to who at this time? Who? The Jews. The Jews. To them was given the oracles of God. And I really wish I had time to explain all the glorious truths that the Jewish system of worship teach us about who God is and how he is to be worshipped. The, the lessons we learn from the tabernacle about God's holiness, his majesty, his sovereignty, the lessons from the Ark of the Covenant and the sacrifices, the need for atonement, the seriousness of sin, the defilement and separation that our sin causes, the need for a substitute, the need for shedding of blood, the lessons are glorious truths of God revealing himself to his people and explaining to them how they might approach him. These belong to the Jews, just as Jesus taught the woman at the well. There was no right way to worship apart from this revelation of redemption that the Jews had received. And so the woman asked, here or there, Jesus says, your worship's wrong, ours is right. Now sure, he's got more to say than that, but he does say that. Your worship is wrong. No, it's not Buddhism or atheism, but it might as well be. 
the Jews, as tolerant, as intolerant as Jesus might seem by making this claim, they alone had the oracles of God. To them alone belonged the hope of the world. Not the Samaritans, not the Romans, not Buddha, nor anyone else under the sun worshipped according to the truth because salvation is from the Jews, so says Jesus. And here's the application we take from that today of us not being a Jewish people but being the fulfillment of that in the church. Where a church has a low view and a weak appreciation for the Old Testament, you'll find a church that's weak in its worship. Partly because a church that ignores the Old Testament is going to have a truncated revelation of redemption. A truncated understanding of that revelation and the God who worked it. So love your Old Testament. Read it. Know it. Be instructed by it. Let it renew your mind. Church, Grow in your understanding of biblical theology, the whole story of God. I love how Michael Horton puts it. He says, it's drama leading to doctrine, leading to doxology, another word for worship, leading to discipleship. You recognize most of the churches flip that on its head, right? Come in, we'll, we'll show you how to be a Christian if we have time. We'll worship together. Then if it doesn't offend you, we'll teach you some of the basic Bible truths. Then if we have time, we'll tell you the whole Bible story. It's not how it works. You have to know the story of God. Doctrine flows from that. that. That can't just be cut out bit by bit. You have to know the story because it's our story. And as you come to know the story and understand the truths within the context of that story, you know what it produces? Worship. That's what you do when you come to know the God who has redeemed his people from their sin and adopted them into his family so that we might enjoy him and glorify him forever. All right, let's recap real quick and then we'll finish. What have we learned thus far? Worship requires. What does it require? Two things. Revelation and redemption. Thank you. Worship is the inevitable response of believing the redemptive revelation. But we've got one more step. What does Jesus say in John 4, 21? Do you have that one? Who is your worship? Okay, go ahead. I must say. Did you get the I wrong one? I always get the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably my fault. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Okay. Thank you, on the one hand, yeah. On the one hand, this is incredible. Did you did you hear what she said? In fact, if I hadn't said anything, everything I just said, we really should be shocked by the statement Jesus makes. Jesus is saying, "You worship the wrong way. We worship the right way. But the right way is about to be the wrong way because there's coming a new way." Did you catch that? Don't miss this. Jesus says the worship of the Jews is right. But it's becoming wrong because he is there. The true worship of the Jews was coming to an end. Again, this might appear shocking, but consider everything we just said. What's necessary for worship? Redemption and revelation. But not just general revelation. That's not sufficient. That only brings condemnation because we don't worship according to general revelation. It's got to be what kind of revelation? Redemptive revelation, and our worship is a response to that. Well, how could you continue to worship in Jerusalem according to that system after the coming of Christ? 
How could you continue to go to the type when the anti-type is right in front of you? Why would you worship in the shadows when the sun has shone? That's what's happening here. The hour, it actually refers to Jesus' ascension. That, that's made clear later in John, but certainly that hour had now already been initiated through Jesus' earthly ministry. If worshiping the right way in truth requires redemption and revelation, we're not really surprised that Jerusalem is no longer a fitting place for worship. Let me state it plainly for you. If worship requires redemption and revelation of that redemption, then there is no true worship apart from Jesus. Amen. You want to know why we're Christ-centered here at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables? It's because we exist to worship. There is no worship apart from Christ. This is what Jesus is telling the woman. The hour is coming and is even now here where the type, the shadow, the promise will be replaced by the anti-type, the substance, the fulfillment. So Jesus explains, not according to wrong worship in Samaria or formerly right worship in Jerusalem, but according to spirit and according to truth. That is how one must now worship. True worshipers will and must worship in spirit and in truth. Pilate asked that question at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, right? He said, what is truth? Well, what do we know from John chapter 1, verses 17 and 18? Who's got it? For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared. I love the way that guy reads scripture, don't you? Yeah, good scripture. <laughs> if we must know God to worship him, how could we know God other than through the one who has made this God we cannot see known to us? That makes sense? Jesus is the revelation of God cannot worship who you do not know and you cannot know God apart from this side of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. So you want to worship in spirit and truth? You have to worship according to Jesus. Any worship that degrades Christ in the least is less than true. Jerusalem in the Old Testament system that is represented was a temporary an inferior system that allowed God's people to worship him truly, yes, by God's grace and mercy, but it was inadequate, as we saw from the repetition of sacrifices revealed as we read the book of Hebrews. It pokes holes in that system to show how it's inadequate. As the tabernacle revealed, being simply a copy. As the priesthood revealed, continually dying. As the faithfulness of Israel as a whole revealed, the whole Old Testament system, it was true worship. But you know what the problem was? The whole Old Testament system of worship didn't produce one true worshiper. Did you know that? That's the point. Jesus is actually the first true worshiper. The whole Old Testament system never really produced one true worshiper who worshiped God from womb to grave in spirit and in truth until Jesus showed up. His is the unbroken life of submission and devotion that is worship. Jesus is the true worshiper. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament system of worship pointed to because he was the true worshiper who the Father was seeking. Jesus' life on earth was a perfect picture of trust and obedience. He is the true and better high priest. He is the perfect atoning sacrifice. Read the book of Hebrews. 
He's the one who's entered into the heavenly tabernacle. And even at this very moment, he is the one who is interceding on our behalf. Church, we can catch that vision even now. He is presently leading us in worship. The fullest revelation of God. He's our redemption, our object of faith, the foundation of our worship. He is the one who through all true worshipers must approach Jesus as our high priest leads us in true heavenly worship. So it's critical to understand that he's not simply an object of worship, but he's actually the true worshiper, making true worshipers by the spirit he's poured out among us. And that's the second thing we see. Not only is Jesus the first true worshiper, but Jesus is making true worshipers. According to the truth of Jesus, by the work of his spirit, the worship is truth as it acknowledges Jesus as the truth, and worship is spirit as we offer our entire lives as worship to God by the power of the spirit at work within us. The spirit of the truth, of the true worshiper, Jesus Christ. No church who fails to proclaim Jesus as the only means to offer true worship is worshiping in spirit and truth. The living waters that Jesus offered, the woman at the well, they flow from us, as Jesus said. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow living waters. So it has been since the day of Pentecost when Jesus sent the Spirit just as he promised. Now Jesus leads the procession and we follow. Jesus reveals the who perfectly. For those who know him know the Father. Jesus reveals the how perfectly because his life was perfect worship and now those who hear this and respond in trust obedience and joy that is worship so that the entire life is lived under submission to god's word and the joy of his salvation now i've got a lot more to say about this uh, but we're going to save the rest for the next couple of weeks but i want to end with this we started with our purpose and I proclaim that this is the purpose for why we exist as a Christian community. We exist to worship. So it felt fitting for me to end our time tonight with John's vision from Revelation 19. For our end is indeed worship. This is what we'll be doing in heaven, friends. Somebody got Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 and 10? Go ahead, Bob. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Amen. Worship God. So we worship up. We praise and honor God through Jesus Christ. We worship in. We gather with our church family to worship God. We worship out and seek to extend God's worship among all peoples for it. Lord. Really, we just focused on worship up because that's the one that's pivotal. We exist to worship. Next week, what we'll consider is how we're going to grow into that day by day, week by week, year after year, and 
until the Lord returns or calls us home. Any questions or comments? Helpful? Encouraged? You know what that means? You're living out your purpose this evening, right here, right now. Isn't that great? Praise God. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, Lord, we know that there's no true worship apart from a knowledge of you through your Son, relationship with you established in covenant by and through your Son, our great High Priest, who leads us in heavenly worship. So, Father, we thank you that even now he stands in the holy place making intercession for us. We thank you that through him we may enter and offer you sacrifices of praises and thanksgiving. Father, I pray that you would magnify your name among us. Cause us to respond in worship to this glorious truth. Thank you for the redemption, for the knowledge of you we have through your son Jesus. Thank you for the spirit of worship that abides in us. Be with us now as we understand and live out this purpose. Help us to see practically how this functions in our Sunday morning services and our Wednesday night services. And Lord, every day as we live our lives as Christians, as we live our lives in a community, remind us of this grand and glorious purpose we have to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. As always, I'm here for questions and discussions at the end of service. If you don't have any, God bless you. Thank you for being here. You are dismissed.